Father, those are precious words as always that we sing and all of the music that we sing to you. It's a reflection of our gratitude, the response of a regenerate heart when sung in truth as expressions of praise to you. The response of a regenerate heart who has tasted the kindness of the Lord, who's felt the bitterness of the sin that is in us and felt the sweetness and known the sweetness of grace and forgiveness uh, that is in Christ. And so we offer our lives to you, not only in our words, but in our actions, in our attitudes, in our thoughts, and all of the things that encompass the totality of our lives. We want it to bring honor and glory to you. Enable us to do this, standing firm in grace to the glory of Jesus Christ. And help us along that road, even now as we open your word together, that you would instruct us, teach us Holy Spirit, and help us to see every time we open your word, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles again to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. I introduced this uh, chapter last week, but we're going to look at it again this week. And I was hoping to finish up this week, but you probably won't be surprised. We're going to have one other message that we'll get to in just a few weeks. Next week, Andy Woodfield will be preaching, and then the following week, we'll have a missionary. I put it out in the email, Michael Foster, whom we are considering supporting as a church, but he's going to come and present his ministry uh, in Sunday school hours. So if you don't usually go, uh, I want to encourage you to go, but if you, there would be a special time you go, make it next week so you can hear him present his ministry, and then he'll be opening the word to us uh, on, in the morning service. But until then, we do want to look again at Daniel chapter 9 in this uh, very important and crucial prophecy of 70 weeks, of the 70 weeks of Daniel, it is often called. Now, I didn't mention last week, I realized afterwards, why all of a sudden we went from Revelation chapter 6 and parachuted into the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 9 in these 70 weeks. It is because in Daniel chapter 9, in the 70-week prophecy that we're going to be going through in the next couple of weeks, we have the establishment of the seven-year period of the tribulation. We have the completion of God's plans for the nation of Israel And it explains to us what is repeated again in the New Testament and in particularly in the book of Revelation as to the nature of these seven weeks, which is introduced with the coming of the four horsemen and the rise of the Antichrist in the middle of this week. Well, all of that is encompassed here in Daniel chapter 9 and the prophetic word that we have from God. And so it's important for us to understand This prophecy of Daniel, in order to understand what we have begun to look at in Revelation chapter 6. And so, as we go through this, we'll uh, get the framework and the foundation for all that we're going to cover in Revelation. And as I said, by the time we get to Antichrist, which we'll introduce in a few weeks when we wrap up this prophecy in verse 27, uh, we'll have to come back to the book of Daniel simply because there is so much background information that tells us more of the detail about the ministry and or about the uh, workings and the doings and the circumstances for the rise of the Antichrist, the particular details of his kingdom and as well as his destruction. 
And so this is an incredibly important section of Scripture in our understanding of God's purposes and plans, not only for the nation of Israel, but as we noted last week, God's plans for the nation of Israel encompass his plans for the entire world and the Gentile nations as well. So with that said, let's read the passage once again. So verse 24 down to verse 27, and then we'll pick up where we left off last week in the middle of verse 24. So Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with the flood. Even to the end, there will be war Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. And there we have, in just a few short verses, God telling us, millennia before the completion of all of those events, what his plans are for the nation of Israel and again for the world. Uh, Let's look again at verse 24 and just very briefly remind you of what we considered last week as he introduces this prophecy. Verse 24, as we noted, acts as a summary of the entirety of the events. It acts as the the telos, or the, the end, the completion of what all of these 70 weeks is going to bring about. It looks at the entirety of it, of this 70 weeks, and essentially gives us the very essence of what God is accomplishing. And we noted first, right at the very beginning, first the time that is set out, but it is a 70 weeks that has been decreed for your people. And we noted there that there is a certainty, as there is in every prophetic word of God, to that which he has declared. In other words, what he has declared, he will bring about. This is what is decreed. We noted secondly that it is a decree that focuses particularly on the people of Israel or the Jewish nation. He says it has been decreed for your people and for your holy city. That is the context and that is the only context in which the nature of these events would have been understood. It refers to the Jewish nation. Now, as the very essence of what God plans to accomplish and intends to bring about for the Jewish nation, he identifies in six statements or six events. The first three of these events are related primarily to what Christ accomplished at his first coming, and the last three events relate primarily to what Christ will bring about at his second coming when he comes to establish his kingdom on the earth. Let's just briefly remind you of what we looked at last week. The first is... He says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and for your holy city first to finish the transgression. In other words, to let it run its course, to let it run its complete course. 
where the transgression will have reached its uttermost. We noted last week that the transgression of Israel is yet to be finished, but there will be a time when God puts an end to their rebellion. We noted just as one brief example in First or Second or First Thessalonians chapter two that Paul mentioned specifically that they are still always filling up the measure of their sin. In other words, they are still in the process of working out their transgression and working out the reality of their rebellion against God. But there is a time when that will come to an end. And this is not an unusual working of God. I didn't mention this last week, but just by analogy. If you remember when God was telling Moses about, or excuse me, Abraham about the future and about the forming of the nation and the delivering of the nation and so forth, he says the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet completed. In other words, there was an amount of sin, an amount of rebellion yet to be completed by that people before God would bring judgment. That's, that's in essence the kind of idea here. To finish the transgression. We noted, secondly, to make an end of sin. To make an end of sin. And that is to bring about an end to the habits of rebellion and disobedience that were forever the, the, the uh, stumbling block of the nation of Israel. Forever they're being led into idolatry. Forever their rejection of the covenant. Forever their ignoring of the law of God, which was brought about the destruction. Even the very destruction that Daniel is praying about at the beginning of this chapter and that brought Daniel into the land of Babylon in the first place, namely the destruction that came at the destroying of the temple during the exile period. And we noted that before. Ultimately, by the end of that period, those three beginning in 605, and it would end around 587, 586 BC, the temple lay in ruins and the people in a foreign land, and it seemed like all was lost. But here is a reminder that all is not lost. God is accomplishing his purposes. And here one day, this, this sin that has forever plagued the nation of Israel will one day be made an end to. And then he notes the very essence of that. How will that bring about? To make an atonement for iniquity. To make atonement for iniquity. That is speaking to of the crucifixion of Christ, the atoning sacrifice of Christ. It is the time when the Messiah would come and would provide atonement for sin that, to where the people would no longer bring an animal to the temple, lay their hands on it, confess their sin, kill it, give it over to the priest, and do that continually day after day after day, year after year after year as a reminder that the way into the holy place had not yet been revealed for the people of God. That an atonement would be made, an atonement for iniquity. And this was anticipated with the coming of Christ who would be that atonement for sin. And we noted very briefly there, even in the book of Isaiah, where that is so clearly laid out for us. One who would offer himself as a guilt offering for his people. And then we noted lastly, last week, to make an atonement for sin and to bring in everlasting righteousness. And this was the hope, this is the beginning now of that which would come with the return of Christ. All of the others, the foundation was laid and it was uh, dealing primarily with the iniquity and the sin of Israel to finish the transgression, to put an end of sin, to make an atonement for sin. And now is this future glorious fruit of all of those things ultimately to bring in everlasting righteousness. This was the hope of the people of God. This was the hope of the return of the Messiah figure that he 
he would come. He would bring righteousness and justice. It would be a kingdom that is glorious. It would be a kingdom whose authority and glory spread throughout all of the earth. It would be a fulfillment of all of those promises that God made to Israel. No longer would Israel, his people, be rebelling against him, but they would be walking in righteousness from that point to evermore. And, of course, that's something that is yet to come. It didn't happen between the time of this prophecy and the coming of Christ the first time. It hasn't happened since that first coming of Christ, but it is promised for the future. And then he takes it, and this is where we'll pick it up this morning. The second of these that are related to the return of Christ. He says, to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up vision and prophecy. To seal up vision and prophecy. Now, what is he referring to here? Well, this phrase could be understood in two ways. The idea of seal or sealing up could be seen as an affirmation or a way to authenticate what God has promised by bringing about all the visions of the prophets he's made concerning Israel. In other words, he will affirm all of the prophecies concerning Israel. A second way to understand that could be that seal in the sense of being rolled up and put away with the idea that these forms of revelation will no longer be needed. So one focuses on the fulfillment, the bringing about of the prophecy, and one, the cessation of them. But in either way, it doesn't matter. They're essentially, both of those positions are saying the same thing or bring about the same result. And that is this, a completion of all of God's words concerning Jerusalem. A completion of all of God's words concerning Jerusalem. That being said, the, prob- the second is probably correct in that he's referring here to a time in which all other forms of revelation will be unnecessary because of the presence of the Messiah. Because of the presence of the Messiah, who will himself fulfill all of the promises given to Israel. And this making unnecessary the completion uh, or any more prophetic word or visions and all of those means of revelation of God will coincide with the completion of all that God anticipated and all of the blessing that God anticipated concerning his people. Now the first instance of this can be seen with the cessation of these as common forms of revelation among the people of God when we had the coming of Christ and when we had the completion of the Old Testament canon. You remember the words of Jude 3 that the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So there was a profound shift in how God communicated with his people with the coming of Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Jason read it this morning out of John chapter 1. The incarnate word, the incarnate word was a significant shift in all of the particulars of the manner in which God would communicate to his people. And then with the coming of the Holy Spirit, who indwelled the people of God in fulfillment of the new covenant promise, God established the prophetic word in Christ as the primary means of his voice to his people. Again, it was read earlier this morning in Hebrews chapter 1. Familiar words, let me just uh, remind you of them. Hebrews chapter 1, he says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in a son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the world. So there is a sense in which this prophetic 
word, the prophecy and vision, which was a more common way of God communicating his will to his people, never always in uh, correspondence to the written word that was primary, but that was supplemented more often with the prophetic ministry. You can think of Elijah and Elisha and others in the writing prophets. That came to an end with the appearance of Christ. That came to an end with the establishment of the New Covenant Scriptures, which recorded the fulfillment of the first coming of Christ in the Lord's coming, in His death, His life, His death, and His resurrection. However, that cannot be what He's referring to here for the simple reason that there was vision and prophecy after His coming and during the period of the writing of the New Uh, covenant scriptures, but also there is still the anticipation of that before the end of the age and the return of Christ. You can remember the prophetic word of Joel chapter 2, which was repeated by Peter in Acts chapter 2, recognizing that the end of the ages has come upon upon all people with, again, the ascension of Christ and with the coming of the Holy Spirit. He's acknowledging that this new age, this anticipated age is coming in. Quoting from Joel, he says, I'll pour forth my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour forth my spirit. And then he talks about I'll grant wonders in the sky, signs in the earth below, blood, fire, vapor, and smoke. Now all of those things didn't happen. As we noted before, there is a way that the prophetic word works itself out. With the coming of Christ and with the presence of the Spirit at Pentecost, there was the embreaking of this eschatological age, of this kingdom of the Messiah. There was its introduction into the world. There was the establishment and the growth of this kingdom through the preaching of the gospel and the establishment of the church. But all of those events merely marked that that age has come, although all of those events haven't been completed. There's not yet blood uh, the, the stars falling and the blood, uh, the sky turning to blood red and so on and all of those things. In other words, these are events that have been begun, but they are not yet completed. And even at the very end of the age, during the period of the tribulation, there is a note that these things will increase, that there will be prophecy and there will be vision and there will be uh, those modes of revelation uh, determined by God. One uh, climactic example of that is the two witnesses which are recorded for us in Revelation chapter 11. They raise up from God as unique prophets of the word of God and they do prophesy and they do declare and they do stand as great prophets to the people of the earth. Ultimately they will be killed and then raised before them all. We'll get there uh, in time to come. But the point simply is to say that Prophecy will, at one point, be more of a way that God declares his revelation. So when is he talking about here then? If it's not at the completion of the canon, and if it's not even at the completion of the age and the tribulation, when will this time come where he will seal up vision and prophecy? Well... In connection with the other promises that it will be to when the Messiah puts an end to, when there's a finish of transgression, puts an end to sin and makes atonement for iniquity and brings in everlasting righteousness, that is the point when there will be a sealing up of vision and prophecy. It refers to when Christ is present on the earth, when the Messiah is present on his earth, on the earth with his people. 
Remember, these things haven't happened yet. Even now, after the first coming of Christ again, these things are not yet completed. They have had the foundation laid for them. They are anticipated, but they are not yet completed. So this seal-up vision and prophecy is consistent with this time when those things will be completed, when they will be a reality, and that will be when Christ is present again with his people on the earth. There will be no more need for revelation from God. Now let me just take you to one other passage, and I'll mention it to you, where Paul anticipates this same idea uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, Beginning in verse 10, well, actually beginning in verse 9, he says this. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Verse 11, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Paul is anticipating a time that is going to come when all the normal or usual forms of revelation are done away with because they're no longer necessary. That's the point. They're no longer necessary. Because the culmination of which all of Revelation points us to is realized. And that is to see Christ face to face. Now, there is some discussion on what he means in verse uh, 10 about when the perfect comes. Some see this as a reference to scripture. And that is possible in the idea of completed Revelation. But it is best to see it here as a reference to the presence of Christ when believers are in his presence in a resurrected state. And this comes primarily in connection with what he anticipates in verse 12. But then, face to face, we will see face to face the one for whom we have been redeemed and whose image we are being conformed. This picks up on the language of the ultimate end of all of Revelation, the ultimate end of all of our redemption, and you don't have to turn there, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 4. It says, There will no longer, in verse 3, be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His slaves will serve Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their forehead. This is the great event, the terminus of our redemption that Paul is anticipating there in 1 Corinthians 13. It is at that point, out of perfect communion with Christ, out of the absence of sin, out of being in His presence, being in glorified bodies, that all the needs of revelation, all the mediation of revelation that now we experience, God's people this side of heaven, will no longer be needed. It will be an immediate communion, a immediate fellowship, an immediate sense and or reality of the presence of God with his people, intimate communion with Christ and through him with the Father. All of our interaction and our fellowship with him will be instantaneous, complete, though growing, when we are in his presence forever. But the first instance of this, the first establishment of this reality is at the return of Christ after he returns to establish 
his kingdom on earth. He will be physically present among his people, his people in glorified bodies. We'll get to more of that later. But the first instance of this, again, will be after he returns, after he establishes his kingdom on earth. And this would be the meaning, include the meaning here of Daniel chapter 9.24. That's the reference point of Daniel 9.24. When will he bring in everlasting righteousness? When will uh, he bring about the completion of his work when he atoned for sin? It is when he returns, and it is at that point He will dwell physically among his people on the earth. And there will no longer be the need for vision and prophecy because all of the prophetic words for Israel will have been fulfilled. The kingdom of promises come into their full fruition. All of the blessing that he anticipated is now realized. It is a glorious period. It speaks of the intimacy and the fullness of the knowledge of Christ that we will know. And that then coincides with the last and to anoint the most holy place. To anoint the most holy place. Now the holy place here is a reference to the temple. And the idea here is that he will officially here bring about the full intention of the temple representation which is the presence of God among his people. Now, it's careful here that we understand what he means. In one sense, the earthly tabernacle and the temple were, according to Hebrews 9, 20 through 25, merely copies of the heavenly realities that they represented and that Christ was the substance of them and that Christ no longer, or there no longer was there the need to come to the earthly representation. But as he says in Hebrews chapter 9, Christ entered into the more perfect tabernacle, into the heavenlies, into the true holy of holies in the presence of God. And he entered to, to that place for us. And so he says in Hebrews 10, 24, speaking of Christ, he did not enter into a holy place made with hands, a copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. In light of this, the new covenant reality of the church describes the people of God united to Christ as being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So now there is a sense then in which the coming of Christ and the accomplishments of Christ in His death and His resurrection and in the sending of the Spirit and in His present intercessory ministry for the church that the presence of God is now located in the church in the people of God, those in whom he dwells. He is among his people. There is no longer the separation of the holy place and the people outside of it. There's no longer that exclusive place where God dwelled within this inner inner part of the temple, but now the people of God dwell in the fullness of the presence of God by the Spirit, something that was only represented previously through the temple and, and again his unique presence at the Ark of the Covenant in that, that most holy place, the tabernacle and the temple. So there is a sense in which the, the reality and the, the end to which the temple looked at is begun, has begun to be realized right now, has begun to be realized because of the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit. But that is not what he's referring to here. That is not what he's referring to here. 
It's, it's part of the, the big idea. But here he's referring not to a spiritualized view of the temple, but he is referring to the physical temple that relates particularly to God's dealings with Israel. Now, here's, here's then where it needs to be clear. The fact is that it requires, in the context of Daniel chapter 9, this to refer to a physical temple. A physical temple that will coincide with the presence of Christ on earth with his people and the completion of all of the things that have already been named. It requires a physical temple because it's, in verse 26, there is the people, the Messiah will be cut off. There's a sanctuary there. And it, there it is refers to where uh, a place that it will, they'll be cut off from it, but where they were previously worshiping. In verse 27, there's going to be a temple again because there's going to be offering of sacrifice and grain offering. So the idea of a physical temple runs throughout the entirety of this passage. And there's no reason then to spiritualize the understanding of the most holy place here. God's purposes for the temple reality go beyond his present working in the church to a period anticipated by both Jesus and Paul, which I mentioned last week, where Jesus says it will be trampled until the time of the Gentiles. In other words, there'll be a point where it's reestablished. And Paul as well mentioned that God has put Israel aside until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So here's a question then. What temple then is he referring to? What temple and what time is he referring to? Well, he can't be referring to Solomon's temple, obviously, because that's been destroyed. That's done. That that's was the, the, marker that's the, the final mark before he sent the entire nation of Judah into exile. It can't be the second temple, that is, the temple that was rebuilt after the return into the land under the ministries of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, rebuilding the temple and then Jerusalem and the walls and all of that. It can't be that because none of these other events have taken place, everlasting righteousness and end of transgression, sealing up vision and prophecy and all of those things. It's not Herod's temple, which he was building and which was being built in the time of the Gospels in the first century when we have the appearance of the Messiah, again, for the same reasons. It didn't bring in everlasting righteousness. In fact, it was destroyed in 70 AD, something that will be referred to uh, later in our passage. It's not the temple that will be built during the tribulation period, again, because it doesn't fulfill all of these other promises of everlasting righteousness, and that is a temple also that will be desecrated by the Antichrist. It is a temple that Jesus himself notes that the abomination of desolations will corrupt, and it is at that time that great destruction and judgment will come. So that doesn't fit any of these things. So what temple is he referring to? The only other option here is a reference to the temple that will be present during the millennial kingdom. The temple that will be present during the millennial kingdom. This is a reality that is anticipated throughout the entirety of the prophetic word. Let me just give you a couple of passages. Isaiah chapter 67, and I'll just read it. Anticipating this glorified Zion, this renewed Zion, this renewed glory of Jerusalem this future time when there is, right, there is righteousness dwelling everlastingly, when there is an atonement for iniquity has been made and into sin and those things. He says this, All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered to you, the rams of Neboeth, 
will minister to you, and they will go up with acceptance on my altar, and I shall glorify my glorious house. I will glorify my glorious house. And it will be a place of glory among the nations where he vindicates his promises in this context to the nation of Israel. It will be a place of glory where he makes his name known by his bringing about the fulfillment of all of his promises. This is a future time. It is a time anticipated as well in the book of Ezekiel. And again, I'll just read it to you. The the key section here in Ezekiel 37, beginning in verse 26, referring to a time when David will be king over them. They'll have one shepherd. They'll walk in all of my ordinances and keep my statutes. In other words, they will walk at a time in which there is everlasting righteousness. They will live on the land. I'll give to Jacob my servant in which your fathers lived. That's a very specific land. They will live on it. Their sons and their daughters, David my servant, will be their prince forever. We'll come back to that later. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. I will place them and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people and the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst. Understand the prophetic picture here. That it is Israel... And God's faithfulness and faithful promises to Israel in the land, walking in everlasting righteousness, being ruled over by Messiah their king, that will be a witness to the Gentile nations, to the other nations. There's not a melding together of God's present work as if that were the fulfillment and completion of it now. As if Israel was no longer Israel and no longer had a place of witness to the other nations. Here it is Israel and God who sanctifies Israel when his sanctuary is in their midst forever that is itself a testimony to the power and the providence and the promises and the faithfulness of God to the people to whom he gave those promises. And so this is looking to another time. This is looking to a time in which God will glorify his name through his presence with his people and the fulfillment of his promises through a temple. Now this is a point of much discussion that we'll get later to later in Revelation, but the most full description of this is found in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, referring in massive detail to a temple that is yet future, a temple that is yet to come to the people of God. And it is in this temple, which I'll mention just briefly here, that Christ the Messiah himself is said to inhabit. Let me give just one passage here in Ezekiel 43. Just listen as he's referring to this great day, this great temple. He's giving a vision to Ezekiel. He says in verse 1, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east. Behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone in his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, the vision when I saw when he came to destroy the city. In other words, there he saw the glory of God depart. Now the glory of God is returning. And he says, verse 4, The glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing the east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. 
I heard one speaking to me from the house while a man was standing beside me. Verse 7, he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne, the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. And the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their harlotry and by the corpses of their kings." It is then which the king will come and dwell there in the house of the Lord. This is the place of my throne, the place of the soles of my feet. The Messiah will dwell among his people. The Messiah will fulfill and bring about all of his promises. The, the Messiah will rule over his people just as they have hoped for and has been anticipated in the prophetic word. So in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, when are these things to take place? When is there going to be an end of sin, a finishing of the transgression? When is there going to be the full consequence and fruit of an atonement for iniquity? When is there going to be everlasting righteousness? When is prophecy and vision going to be sealed up? And when is there going to be an anointing of the most holy place? When Christ returns and establishes his kingdom on the earth in fulfillment of his promises to Israel. That's when this is going to take place. That's what those passages and many others are anticipating. And it is in the fulfillment of that word that God shows his faithfulness to his covenant promises. And it's hard not to hear the echo then of Paul's words in Romans 11. For the promises and the covenants of God, he refers to there, are irrevocable. That God again will turn to Israel and Israel will be saved. And that is after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. He says, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's why it's going to take place, even though thou in our present age they are enemies of God. But here is the promise as it stands before us. Now there is one interesting note here, just by observation. There's really only a few times within the outworking of God's redemption that there isn't a temple on the earth. There, of course, is not a temple in the pre-Mosaic period. So then you have after Moses, the tabernacle, later the temple. Uh, there is not a temple during the period of the exile because it lay in ruins there's not a temple during the time of the destruction of it in 70 AD all the way to the end of the age. And there's no temple in the eternal state. However, there is a temple anticipated, as we've noted, during the time of the tribulation period because sacrifices will be put to a stop. We'll look in that in detail later. There is a temple between their return to the land until its destruction in 70 AD there is a temple anticipated about in the time when the Messiah will come. So it plays a significant role in the purposes of God. And here it is wrapped up in the presence of Christ among his people. And it's important then to understand that the recipients of these promises and the nature of the six goals of God's work are focused on the nation of Israel. They don't make sense outside of that. 
And if this isn't understood, it may be assumed that the 70 weeks were completed with the crucifixion of Christ, which would eliminate the ability to understand all of the events that are recorded there, particularly the events of the last week. Now, with that being said, let's introduce now, I want to, the timing of these events. So God's sovereign timetable for Israel would be the sort of the heading for this next section. God's sovereign timetable. And that begins in verse 25. So in verse 24, he wraps up the essence of all of his purposes, the summary of his intentions for the nation of Israel. And then beginning in verse 25 down to the end of verse 27, he begins to lay out a timetable, a prophetic timetable for when he will accomplish these events. And again, I'm just going to begin it, begin this morning. He says in verse 25, So you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and with moat, even in times of distress. And then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with the flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. When he says here in verse 25, you are to know and discern, those two terms together have the combined idea that, you, that God is going to give him more specific and detailed information and he is to discern and have spiritual insight into it. And he begins then by saying that the divine clock for this prophetic word begins with the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And then at the end, it will be built again with plaza and with moat, even in times of distress. So again, in these events, he gives a definite marker and time for the divine clock to start. Now, some take this here in most of your translations. It will have seven weeks and 62 weeks, which is a better translation to keep these two distinct. A seven, uh, which would be seven weeks, a period of 49 years, and then 62 weeks. Although in the end, and again I'll come back to this, it is, it's important, uh, the, the importance of these and the identification of these weeks uh, is be- and the beginning of this divine clock is best seen when you're taken as a whole in the totality of the years. And just as a reminder of last week, uh, as we noted, this, the days in each of these prophetic weeks is equal to one year. So 49 days would be 49 years and so on and so forth. Let's note then the first of these seven weeks. The first or the, of these 69 week, or these 70 weeks uh, begins with seven weeks, which would be 49 years. And here is the beginning of when the word, this, this clock starts, when the word goes forth to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. This could be word or decree. Now, there are a few options, then, of when this begins. As we've noted in the past, that Israel was taken away in three separate events into exile. There was the first event in which Daniel was a part of it, where he took the nobles and the elite of the land. There was a second event, and then there was a third event that happened, again, around 587 or 586 B.C., in which the temple was desecrated, Jerusalem was destroyed. Uh, It's the Book of Lamentations that describes the the horrific realities of that event. 
And then in correspondence to that, there were these three returns to the land that dealt with various aspects of them being reestablished in their land with the temple and in the city of Jerusalem. There was Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And that dealt with going back into the land to lay the foundation of the temple, the building of the temple, and the establishment of worship again, the worship of the people of God. And then it was completed with the building of the walls and the city proper uh, by Nehemiah. And so there are three options here to understand this. When were those decrees given? One option uh, that could be laid out there is with the decree of Cyrus. The decree of Cyrus. Now we're not going to look at all of these, but in Ezra chapter 1, 2 through 4, we have Cyrus issuing a decree that is itself a fulfillment of God's promise given in Isaiah chapter, in Isaiah chapter 40. 5, 44 and 45, in which he said he would raise up Cyrus to rebuild Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter 44, uh, really beginning in verse 28. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. In verse 45, thus the Lord says to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I've taken by the right hand to subdue nations and to loose the loins of king, to open the doors before him, and so forth. In other words, God is going to raise up a pagan king, a pagan ruler, to uh, allow and to set the arrangements for Israel to return to the land. He's going to give him the authority to do that, And he is going to use him for the blessing of his people, Israel. Now this decree went out, that's recorded for us in Ezra chapter 1, around 538 B.C. And so some want to begin the prophetic clock with that event. Now the problem with that is twofold, of identifying it with the decree of Cyrus. One is that following the years of the 70 weeks, there are not the historical events that match up with any of the promises here. In other words, the historical events in the history of Israel don't match up with the years, uh, the events that are to be accomplished in the years here uh, laid out for us. And secondly, the decree recorded for us of Cyrus that was given, it was recorded us for in Ezra chapter 1, uh, dealt It's exclusively, it dealt specifically with the house of the Lord, mentioned in Ezra 1.3, not the actual city of Jerusalem. So that is an unlikely candidate here to be the start of the divine clock. This specifically relates to the building, he says at the end of verse 25, with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. There's a second option, and that's with Artaxerxes, in Ezra 7.11, who commissioned Ezra to return to Jerusalem seven years into Artaxerxes' reign, which began in 465. So this decree to Ezra would have begun then in verse uh, 458 B.C. Now this is considered by some to be the most likely option for the issuing of the decree mentioned here in Daniel chapter 9. However, again, it's important to note that this decree, like the first by Cyrus, was primarily concerned with the temple and not with the city. Laying the foundation, reestablishing the worship of the temple, but it was not primarily focused on rebuilding the city itself, its moats and its plaza, rebuilding Jerusalem. 
And so this, again, is an unlikely candidate. Some want to argue, one author says for this position, that Ezra's resultant work, I'm quoting, did concern rebuilding Jerusalem in a moral and a spiritual way, and therefore it can account for the beginning of the decree here. But again, that isn't what the text of Scripture says. He's dealing here with an actual, not the idea of them being built up morally, but with a real physical temple. A real physical re-establishment of the people in the land built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So there's a third option. And that is with Artaxerxes again in the 20th year of his reign, mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 2 verses 5 through 8. This is the decree that went to Nehemiah to go back and to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, to once again complete the construction of Jerusalem that had, at this point, up to this point, lay in ruins with no defense and needed again to be built up and strengthened as a dwelling place for the temple of God and for the people of God and for the city of David and so forth. This decree then is most likely the one, or is the one that seems to most clearly satisfy the description of verse 25 to rebuild Jerusalem with plaza and moat. This would have taken place in 445 BC, again, the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes. Now, and corresponding with this, starting at 445 BC, the historical events in the history of Israel leading up finally to the appearance of the Messiah and the Messiah being cut off work with the number of years that would be um, uh, correspond to the beginning of the decree in 445 B.C. So in other words, the decree in 445 B.C. matches the description of building up the physical uh, walls of Jerusalem with moat and plaza, the physical structures of Jerusalem, and it corresponds historically with the events in the history of Israel ultimately leading up to the coming of Christ. Now just hold on to that for a bit in your mind. He then moves from the seven weeks to the 60, another set uh, parred off or paired off by 62 weeks. And here he introduces that right in the middle of verse 25 when he says, until Messiah the Prince, there will be 70 weeks and 62 weeks. And then he's going to introduce the 62 weeks again in verse 26. And that middle of verse 25 and then the events of verse 26 form these two bookends, really. And verse 25 mentions the idea of the coming of the Messiah and then the bookend of all of those events uh, already begun with that decree who went out that went out is the Messiah, he says in verse 26, being cut off and having nothing and the people of the prince who will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So what is the end of this seven weeks and then this 62-week period? It is that the Messiah has come. He has not completed, fulfilled, brought about uh, all of the things that were mentioned in verse 24. In fact, he is cut off and the city is destroyed. That becomes the marker for the end of the 69 weeks, the 62 plus 7. And so, there it is in the divine clock. Now again, let me back up just one, one more thing uh, here. Uh, just in, in why we would see this as 445 B.C. Notice what he says at the end of verse 25. I realize I skipped over this. I want to go back to it. 
He says, even in times of distress. And we're not going to turn back to that, but this would coincide precisely with the work of Nehemiah and the conditions and the completion of the wall in which he was opposed throughout. And it was distress. You can remember him stationing guards on the wall. With one hand, they're working. With one hand, they're holding a weapon to defend the city and so forth. It was a constant threat to them, and it was a great means of rejoicing when they did complete the work because of the dangers that they faced throughout that time. Uh, for time's sake, we're not going to go back. I'd, you go back on your own and read Nehemiah and Ezra. But that then is the beginning of the clock, and here we have these 62 weeks that's going to end with this great event, momentous event of the Messiah being cut off. And so let's consider that just very briefly. Very briefly. And then this is where we're going to pick it up next week. He says, until Messiah, the prince, or the ruler. Let's at least this morning identify who is this Messiah and the prince. Although Cyrus, as I read earlier, is referred to in Isaiah 45.1 as God anointed, he's not here, he cannot here be referring to him as a pagan ruler who God used, yes, to issue the beginning of their return into the land. But the, this Messiah and Prince coincides not merely with that, but with all those, the completion of these other events of making atonement for iniquity, bringing in everlasting righteousness, and so forth. He's not referring to Messiah here. Plus, after these 62 weeks is after all these things have already been completed. In other words, after the, the building of the walls and, and so on, the, the plaza and moat. He's not referring to Cyrus here because Cyrus also wasn't cut off and made to have nothing. So who is he referring to here? Well, it's interesting. Notice how he defines this coming one. He says the Messiah and the Prince. In other words, the anointed one and the ruler. And here he is using language that specifically combines these two offices of priest and king. This is... As it's translated, the Messiah, the one that was anticipated to come to bring about all of these promises. Let me give you just two passages. In Psalm 110, you're familiar with it. This is the anticipation of this one and the only one and the unique one who would fulfill these two offices. He says in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In other words, he holds these two offices of king and of priest together. He said back in verse 1, I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Your strong scepter speaks of his ruling as king from a particular one who would combine these offices. Zechariah 6.13, he says, yes, it is he, let me go up to verse 12, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord, yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will build the honor, and sit and rule on his throne, and he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. That's only of Messiah. He's speaking here of Christ. He's speaking here of the Lord Christ. And the presence of the Lord Christ and the coming of this one that will put a capstone or a book in on this period of 62 weeks 
is noted in these words. What event will bring it about? That he will be cut off and he will have nothing. He will be cut off and have nothing. Well, now we have then the entire picture of these first period. There's a decree that goes out. There's a rebuilding of Jerusalem. That's 445 B.C. We have the appearance of the Messiah who at the end of this 62 weeks in this first period then will uh, note the, end, the, the stopping of the divine clock by the fact that he will be cut off and he will have nothing. This is a clear reference then to the crucifixion of Christ. It's a strong term that references his death, even a violent death. He will have nothing, a clear reference to his first coming and how it ended in what would have been observed by others ignobly, cut off from his people, cut off without a people, cut off without having accomplished everything that he said that he would that was anticipated. He was abandoned by his disciples, rejected by his people, put to death as a criminal. In the words of Isaiah 53, he was despised and forsaken of men, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, By oppression and judgment, he was taken away and he was numbered with the transgressors. So this is the reality and the fullness of that anticipated kingdom, the glory of Israel and all of that did not come about then in his first coming. He appeared and he was rejected. He appeared and he was cut off. He appeared and he seemed to end with nothing with no great kingdom, no great citizenship, no great rule, and no great glory to Israel. He will be cut off, and he will have nothing. And all that seemed to be promised for the nation of Israel would seem to have fallen by the wayside, and they forever abandoned by the Lord. And then he says, And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and even to the end will come a flood even to the end there will be war desolations are determined well we're going to have to pick it up there I didn't get quite as far as I wanted but here is the overall idea with this is that God has not left his people in the dark he has given us a way to understand the events in the world and his covenant promises We don't need to, I would observe here then, to try to blend in all of the promises for Israel into the present events of the church. God has made distinct that there are events yet to come and he has within his divine purposes things he will accomplish to, with, and through his covenant people. And the accomplishment will involve judgment, it will involve Dealing with sin, it will involve their own suffering yet again. It will involve deception, but in the end, it will bring about his saving purposes. And that really, if I could just give one idea as we come to the table, is is an encouragement that we can glean by observation. And it is this, namely, that before salvation comes suffering. And as we've noted many times before and will throughout the book of Revelation, that before the fullness of our redemption, there comes suffering. And God very often in his judgment, only afterwards, brings salvation. And so we 
have as our ultimate hope, no matter what seems to be lost and destroyed here, the promise that God will bring about his word. He will bring about his promises. And that leads us into the table because that's exactly what these elements are. They are promises from God, they are symbols, and they are reminders that he is coming, he will establish his kingdom, and his word will be vindicated. Let's pray as we come into the table. Father, thank you for giving us this prophetic word. It's, there's much there. and There's so many of your people who understand some of these promises in different ways. And Lord, we understand that you are infinite and that your ways are revealed to us to give us hope, to give us understanding, but also that require much, much thought and require, Lord, us, us to look at the big picture of what you are doing. And Lord, we realize that in the end, we know that you have revealed your word not to confuse things, but to clarify, not to leave us in the dark, but to bring us into the light. And so I pray that as we continue to look at this, we'd find encouragement from your promises of your sovereign working in this world and in our lives, that we would find encouragement by seeing the consistency and the faithfulness of your promises and what you bring about, and that we would find unity in our common love, even outside of the details, to together be in your presence with the fullness of joy in resurrected bodies in fellowship with you forever. Remind us of these promises even as we take these elements. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.